Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1, and I will read verses 21 through 28. Hear now as I read God's Word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, say it, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to receive the good news. We pray, Lord, that not only would we receive this news, the gospel, but, Lord, that you would conform us more and more into your word. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, wow, finally, finally, you're probably thinking, what an exciting thing that we just read about. Isn't that exciting? A, a, an exorcism. Wow. Up until this point, even though we are still around only the middle of the first chapter of Mark's account, we are, there really hasn't been anything this extraordinary in the eyes of man, has there? And now, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And his voice, at his voice, an unclean spirit gets cast out of the one of the men sitting in the pews. I mean, this is pretty amazing, isn't it? It was pretty interesting the Sabbath day in Capernaum. Pretty interesting. Imagine. Until now, we have only read of Jesus' baptism, showing that he identifies with his people. Uh, he is being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, a sort of preparation and initiation for the ministry upon which he would embark. And then we read about the preaching of Jesus' very first sermon, which emphasizes the core of the gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel of God. You see, when the kingdom of God is at hand, when the kingdom of God breaks into your life, you repent of your sins 
and you place all of your hope and trust upon Jesus. We also read about Jesus' first act, if you will, calling his first four disciples, fishermen, who will soon become fishers of men. When the kingdom of God bears down on your life, you know full well that the only response to that call can be to follow Jesus. And now things are about to get really interesting. As more people hear the one who teaches with authority and an exorcism happens right here before our eyes, as Mark recorded for us, Jesus' first miracle. And what you see here is Jesus' first power encounter here in the synagogue. King Jesus and his kingdom is pushing back the kingdom of Satan, and it's intense. And it's exciting. Though it's only eight verses and really only one exchange of words happens, it is loud. And it catches the attention of all who are present that day. Everybody that day knows that something is going on. Now, what is this passage really about? Is it really about unclean spirits? Well, not really. Yes, Jesus does deal with unclean spirits. He does deal with demons in his ministry. But if we say that the focus is on the prevalence of unclean spirits and the importance of exorcism, we'd be grossly missing the point. Could we say it's about the lack of heartfelt worship? Or the lack of heartfelt and vibrant preaching and teaching? I mean, before Jesus enters the synagogue and begins teaching everyone. Even this man that was sitting in the pew with an unclean spirit was content with the scribes' teaching, weren't they? But no, that, that's not the point of this passage. Well, you could give this section the title, A New Teaching with Authority, as I kind of stole that from a commentator. But I think even that title misses the main focus of this, this section. Though it is about teaching, it's not just about teaching. You see, it's about the teacher. It's about the man who has all authority. It's about the authority of Jesus, and Jesus is king. And what we're meant to see here is that you need the kingdom of God. You need the authority of Jesus wearing down and weighing down and bearing in on your life. That's what this passage is about. You see, when this all happens, everyone in the synagogue that Sabbath were astonished. They were awestruck. Maybe they were even a little stunned. They were amazed because maybe they have not grabbed hold of the authority of Jesus. 
Until now, they haven't seen or heard or experienced in anything at all like this. Because now, now that they are confronted with the authority of Jesus, as he demonstrates the kingdom of God in the gospel, now, now they're paying attention. So what we need to get from this passage is that we need Jesus. We need the authority of Jesus in our lives. And we need to see this in two ways from our text. First, Mark shows us this by demonstrating Jesus' authority over the scribes. As Mark gets, sets the stage for us, he shows us that Jesus and his four new disciples make a Sabbath visit to the synagogue in Capernaum. He and his disciples are in the local place of worship. And apparently this was the hometown of his disciples, and Jesus has also chosen to make it his residence there as well after leaving Nazareth. Well, a little bit about Capernaum. Capernaum was a significant lakeside settlement which is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And being right along an important trade route, but far away enough from political and religious leaders, it was a great place for ministry in Galilee. It must have been a pretty nice place, as there was a promenade and piers branching off, which would extend about a hundred feet into the lake, which would be used for fishing and for boats to dock to. You know, it kind of reminds me of some of the places I have been to in Taiwan. It also reminds me of the Navy Pier in Chicago, which I've also visited, or several places right here in California off the coast. And it seems that Capernaum, in Capernaum, the Romans and the Jews experienced a, a, a level of, some, some level of harmony as there was a Roman base there, a, a garrison there. And so there, this is where this all takes place. And Jesus goes into a synagogue there. Now you need to know this is a synagogue and not the temple. There's no sacrifices happening there. But what happens in the synagogue is there is a congregation of Jews in Capernaum, it was probably a mega synagogue. Not a mega church, a mega synagogue. And uh, they would sit in the pews and listening to the reading and the explanation of the Old Testament, and particularly the Torah, or we like to say the Torah. The Jews, the scribes, and the Pharisees were especially concerned with the Torah. The synagogue would have had been overseen by a, a synagogue ruler, a, a man who would uh, take care of the logistics of the synagogue, a sort of overseer. And the scribes would be there. And who were the scribes? Well, the scribes had a full-time job. They would sit there with their pen in their hands and 
They would be the ones that were in charge of copying down, writing down the scriptures. And they would read, and then they would copy. And they would read some more, and then they would copy some more. Now, this was a long time ago before there was a printing press. So all of this was done by hand. And if they weren't reading, they would be listening to the Old Testament, the law, read aloud why they copied it down. And sometimes, since they are human, they would make some mistakes. Humans make mistakes, right? Someone said in the uh, membership class, that's life. Since they were immersed in the word full-time, though, the scribes had a privilege of the, uh, of making important uh, decisions regarding the interpretation. And this synagogue enjoyed a pretty large attendance, so the scribes would also eventually be allowed to teach what, that, what they were writing. And not only that, because they were sort of experts in the law, they could be semi-lawyers to adjudicate when needed as well. Well, Jesus' teaching brought about a sense of fear and alarm among the people. Jesus was different because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Imagine how long the people would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Sabbath day after Sabbath day, and how many times they heard the Torah being read and explained to them by the scribes. Now, don't get the wrong idea. They weren't necessarily teaching anything wrong or unorthodox. And they probably weren't that boring to listen to either. But Jesus' teaching was qualitatively different than the scribes. Jesus' teaching was infinitely more effective than the scribes because of who Jesus is. The kingdom of God was in their midst because Jesus is the gospel. His word is gospel. His word is power. Y'all remember what Paul says in Romans 1.16? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And why is that? Because Jesus is invested by God the Father with all authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is king. In chapter 1, verse 15 Mark says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here it says, he taught them as one who had authority. Now, sometimes you might want to make a false dichotomy out of teaching and preaching. You might want to emphasize that teaching is whatever, whatever, and then preaching is, is something different. When actually they go together. You're getting the... The gist of it, right? I mean, since the beginning, I said you can't have one without the other. And that's what's happening right here. When the word is preached, there is teaching going on. And when the word is taught, 
There is exhortation embedded in it. But Jesus' preaching was different because the Holy Spirit actually takes that word and he bears it upon your lives and he drives it to your hearts. So the people were uncomfortable. Jesus' teaching was disturbing because it was different. It's disturbing to those who are living for themselves and for their own desires. Now, brothers and sisters, what are we to make of this? You need the word of God. You need the word of Jesus to bear on you. You need to take the gospel as what it is. The word of the Almighty, whether it is taught or preached, preached or taught, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to use it and do with it what he will. Because without the authoritative gospel, without Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God at work in your lives, you are just like those congregants in the pews of the synagogue on that day. Sitting there, listening, yes, but it just become a routine thing that you do. And you need to do this fervently and intentively and sincerely and prayerfully. You need to listen to Jesus speak. Yes, on the Lord's day. And yes, every time you open up the book and read it. You might also get disturbed because Jesus wants to do a work in you and he is doing a work in your heart. Without the authoritative gospel, without the word of Christ, you'll be stagnant. And you know what about stagnant water? It stinks. But that man with the unclean spirit on that day was confronted, wasn't he? He was confronted head on with the authority of God in Jesus Christ. Secondly, he shows us this. He shows us the gospel, the kingdom, dominion of God, authoritative, authority of Jesus by demonstrating Jesus' authority over the, the unclean spirit. Now, when you read all of the four gospel accounts, you might get the idea that demon possession and exorcism is a very common thing. And you probably hear this idea all around you. It seems everywhere you go, people are talking about it. You might get the idea that because Jesus did quite a lot of casting out of unclean spirits in the Bible that it is probably just as commonplace now in this day and age. But you would be grossly mistaken. It is true that there are several occurrences of demon possession in the gospel of count, accounts. And sure, they were extraordinary, maybe even quite scary. But really, these occurrences are focused around the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. For in other writings outside of the Bible, there are next to zero occurrences. Also, unclean spirits being cast out is not as prevalent even in the Bible itself. 
but happens only at important junctures in redemptive history. And here we see that Jesus' ministry has really only just begun. That said, however, if you look at the bigger picture, you see that anybody that is not converted is under the power and grip of Satan. We know that Satan does have power, and that power keeps that person dead in sin. And if you are not in God's camp, you are in the devil's camp, and he is your ruler. And all of this until Jesus steps in. Until Jesus breaks in, rather. Then it's a whole new picture. It's a whole new life you're living. See, that's the effect of the gospel of God's kingdom bearing down on your life. But even as Christians, we, we can often take this idea into two opposite ends of the pendulum swing. There are some who get so caught up in the spiritual. It's all spiritual, and the body doesn't matter as much. I remember the charismatic Pentecostal church that we attended before we became members of New Hope Presbyterian Church, which was our first Reformed church. There was such an emphasis on the spiritual realm. So much of an emphasis on spiritual revelatory gifts and spiritual warfare by blowing the shafar, which is a ram's horn, that it almost felt that the physical day-to-day -day life on earth doesn't matter. And if you're sick or something, all you need to do is pray or have someone rub oil on you and pray because that is also a spiritual matter. But we can also have the tendency to think that it's what, that, uh, it's what matters and what is going on is here in the here and now. Some, some people believe in medicine, which is a good God-given thing, but they believe in it so much that they forget to pray or ask for prayer when they are sick, forgetting that God can use and normally uses medical intervention. And he is to get all of the glory. But really, the bottom line is, outside of Jesus... You are in the power, you are in the authority, you are in the stronghold of Satan. So you need that living and powerful word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword to pierce your souls, to pierce your hearts. That's what you need above all else. You need to hear Christ speak. That's why the Bible the Word of God takes priority in all that you do in your life as Christians. That's why first and foremost, that's why it is first and foremost in Westminster's list of the means of grace. So in our passage, when the man who is sitting in the pew on the Sabbath hears the word of Jesus, the unclean spirit cries out. The word in the original for cry out means shrieked. So it was no quiet sound. It was loud. Probably, probably louder than any 
Hollywood movie predict uh, depictions. And this leads us to the next thing. The battle for your souls is fierce. Why? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? What does that 1 John 3, 8 say? It says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that, what is the primary work of the devil? To keep people under the power of sin. Well, you've probably seen war movies or martial art movies, movies which involve a lot of com combat. I'm a movie lover, so I've probably seen them all. And these movies can be pretty intense and bloody. They can give you nightmares. But there's no battle that is more fierce than the cosmic battle for your soul. And this really isn't anything new. You see it all the way back in Genesis 3, don't you? The Lord God said to the serpent, meaning Satan, the devil, the evil one, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see it? The intense battle is raging and was raging from the very beginning. Now in this section, especially in verses 23 through 25, Mark uses very intense language for us. Because he's painting a very vivid picture for us. And if you get it, you'll see just how intense it is. As you read it, you can almost begin to Feel it in your spirit. Well, the first thing you read of this encounter in the discourse between the unclean spirit is this. When Jesus usher, utters his authoritative teaching word, the unclean spirit cried out. The word in the original is screamed or shrieked. If you have ever seen, uh, been to a farm with pigs, you might get what it must have sounded like. Just before the pig gets slaughtered, it makes a very loud, obnoxious squeal. He's squealing for his life. The unclean, perverse, unholy spirit is very angry, and it is fuming. The volcano is about to erupt. It's about to explode. Who knows how long the evil one had kept this man under his power even though he was going to the Sabbath service at the synagogue and probably Sabbath after Sabbath. Imagine what that must have sounded like. The crowd heard it and they were astonished. They probably all jumped 10 feet in the air when they heard that. It's not an easy cakewalk battle that is going on for the souls of man. It's strong. Extremely intense. There's a power struggle going on. That's what makes salvation so miraculous. That's why it is cause for great celebration when 
one of God's lost sheep is found. Well, another place where you see the battle coming to the forefront is when the unclean spirit names Jesus. The unclean spirit surely knows who he is. This is also very intense because for it to name him shows that he is trying to establish authority over him. To name someone by his name shows that you are the superior. And so it names him with his proper title. Jesus did come from Nazareth. And he is the Holy One of God. Do you see it? Even the demons know who Jesus is. And they have correct knowledge of the facts. But this one wants to say, Jesus, I am greater than you. So he tries to put up a fight. And it's relentless. While the title Holy One of God is mentioned only one other place in Scripture, and I think Mark is trying to make a point here. Holy One of God, well, where is it mentioned? Well, it's mentioned way back in the Old Testament, way back in the book of Judges, in Judges 16:17, where the Bible uses this as a title of Samson. Samson prefigures Jesus because Samson is a strong man. And in chapter 2 of Mark, we will read of the strong man being overcome by the stronger man. But Samson had his desire for Delilah, and that ends in his demise. That ends in his death. Yes, the Bible is full of types of Christ, but not a single one of them is sinless. Only Jesus was without sin. But you see, in, its, in, in the unclean spirit's word, the way that he names Jesus, he probably already knows that it will be overcome by the Holy One, Jesus Christ. And that leads us, I think, to the last thing you need to see in our passage, that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus saves from the grip of the devil. Jesus saves from hell. And when Jesus saves, it is forever. Jesus won't unsave anyone that he died for. And when Jesus saves, it is complete body and soul. So you can love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Though you're totally depraved in all areas of life, Jesus has saved you wholly and fully, and he will save you in the end. Well, another Greek word will help us here. When it says that Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Be quiet means to be muzzled, muzzled. You might have heard about muzzling the ox. Jesus is putting a muzzle over its mouth to keep it shut. Think of earlier on when 
Jesus was cast into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Mark says he was there in the wilderness and he was with the wild beasts. So you get the vivid picture here of Jesus placing the muzzle over the trap of a wild beast and locking it shut. He won't be able to torment this man by blocking his ears to the gospel anymore. The devil might try to whisper lies into your ears, but you don't have to be held captive by those lies anymore. Then the unclean spirit, the perverse, polluted, contaminated spirit, convulsed him. He did not come out peacefully. It was violent. And he cried. He cried out of the top of his lungs, and he came out. You see, the Holy Spirit now resides in that place. He was saved on that day. He was set free on that day. Jesus won the victory because our king is victorious. Jesus literally takes one of his out of the camp of the enemy and places him in his own camp. Now the other people were all amazed. Not one of them was accepted. They have never experienced anything like this. So they begin discussing and questioning who this is. They begin discussing and questioning who this greater than Satan one is. And his, his fame begins to spread all around the general vicinity of Galilee. The grace of Jesus Christ truly is amazing. When anyone witnesses a work of God himself, he cannot stay cool, calm, and collected. There will be a response. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you will react. You must. You won't stay silent anymore. So, I have to ask you all the most important question there is to ask in the whole wide world. Have you been set free? Have you confronted grace? I'm standing in front of a church here. Almost everyone here confesses Jesus. Maybe even if they're not old enough because there are little children here that maybe don't understand that much. But I'm asking that question again today to each one of you, including myself. Because today is the day. Today is the day. Don't hold off any longer. Put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Listen to his authoritative word that is calling you. And do that today. Don't wait. Put your trust, your hope, your whole self on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his authoritative word because he is the one that is endowed with all power in heaven on earth and under the earth. And we thank you for calling us. We thank you for making us your people through Jesus Christ and for giving us that free gift of grace.
Lord, today, if we hear his voice, may we not harden our hearts any longer, but may we hear it and may we believe it and may we trust in Jesus today and every day. For it's because of Jesus we pray. Amen.